glad to see everyone here this morning. I, um, for sort of our up to some good, um, it's hard sometimes when we go through weeks like last week, um, and we have colleagues who depart, not many, but still highly significant. And I think last night I had a nursing forum in, in the PICU conference room, and I think it's hard when we have hard days with patients. And it's hard even if we have good days with patients because we're our hardest on ourselves and we think about the things we didn't do well rather than the things we did so well all of the time. But I, I'm privileged, you, know, hear Jim, you hear Jim Weinstein say this a lot, I'm privileged to hear a lot of good support from the thousands, hundreds to thousands of faceless supporters that we all have that, that are out there supporting us in ways we can't even imagine until letters like this come in. So. So this comes to development and alumni relations, as I see Carol Allward here, uh, a, a, a note for a $3,098 check comes in in memory of, uh, of this, this person's sons, Christopher Andrew Nicholas and Donald Brian Nicholas Jr. And they've named their fundraiser, which has gone on now for four years, the Can Do, the Can Do, C-A-N-D-O memorial event. It's been going on for four years. Started off with a $300 donation to Chad and now it's up to 3000 after four years. And, and this donation actually comes not from Chad patients. These, this family is recognizing their two children, their sons, one of whom was 39 years old, lost in a surfing accident while attending a business conference. And the younger brother was, um, was working here in the Upper Valley when died in a car accident at age 25. And this family so recognizes and sends the money each year to Chad. They say it's not large, but is a symbol of love and acknowledgement of the emotional stress that parents have to endure when a child is ill or injured. And as a DHMC emergency department volunteer, this, this gentleman has seen it firsthand. So, so we have supports in places we never know. And I think that's hopefully something that help us think about what we're doing sometimes when we feel like maybe the support isn't always nearby, may not be nearby, but it's outside the doors as well as inside the doors. So a, a nice can-do event. So I'm pleased today to, to welcome a member of our, of our internal family, our Chad family, who's been with us now almost close to two years. Dr. Joseph Shin is a professor of surgery at the Geisel School of Medicine at Dartmouth and the chief of pediatric plastic surgery here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock and the director of Chad's Face of a Child Cranial Facial Program. Uh, a native of Birmingham, Alabama, it's actually Looking at his CV, it's uh, it's a pleasure to have a Yale man here at the podium. Um, not as any Yale man, but but uh, Dr. Shin completed the vast majority of his training at Yale University and Yale New Haven Hospital, with a return home for medical school in the late eighties at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, probably pleasing his parents. He had a fellowship year at Miami Children's Hospital uh, before starting his uh, attending career back again at Yale New Haven Children's Hospital, Yale New Haven Hospital, and um, and its Children's Hospital, of course. Somehow, I guess we're ultimately the beneficiary. Bay State Medical Center pride him free in 2008 from Connecticut, and after a detour through New York City, where is the chief of plastic and reconstructive uh, surgery at Montefiore Medical Center, Albert Einstein College of Medicine. Um, we were thrilled to recruit uh, Dr. Shin here in 2015 to direct our programs. It's, it's hard to summarize, as Joe said, you don't have to say much, uh, uh, an impressively long CV, but I'm, I, I think it's notable that um, 
Dr. Shin has engaged in over 15 international humanitarian surgical missions for cleft lip, palate, and plastic surgery in Brazil, Peru, Bolivia, Ecuador, Mexico, Morocco, India, Egypt, uh, and the like. And he is going to share updates for us in plastic and craniofacial surgery. Welcome, Joseph. Thank you. Thank you. Hopefully you can hear on the mic. Um, all right. And um, I wanted to thank you very much, Keith, for the invitation and to the committee for inviting me. It's a pleasure. And um, um, as Keith said, I, I, I did go to medical school back in Birmingham, Alabama. My father's on the faculty there. And just to show you the changes in times, I, I it was my father was particularly pleased because uh, they had a faculty discount in my I, my uh, my tuition was two thousand dollars a year, so I was <laughs> it was good. Uh, it was probably the best bargain of my life. Uh, but anyway, I, I entitled this talk "Back to the Future" um, and because uh, I, and I put this photograph on up there. Uh, Carol Olwert in uh, development. Um, uh, may recognize that. That is a picture of Dr. Bradford Tanzer, who uh, was chief of plastic surgery here uh, for many, many years. Um, I think they had a mandatory retirement age at 60, uh, so it, he, had a, he would have had a, a remarkable career after just that period of retirement. But he was a remarkable innovator. Um, his wife, Sheila, is still here. Um, and keeps the flame uh, of Dr. Tanzer alive. Uh, he's so well recognized around the world, and I think Dartmouth uh, and uh, Chad and uh, DHMC should be so proud of having uh, such a remarkable, unique uh, innovator. Um, his work in microtia reconstruction of pedia uh, patients without uh, born without an ear was by far the most revolutionary um, uh, leap forward in the management of this particular craniofacial disorder. And it still is the gold standard by which we um, actually look at um, reconstructing things today. So I think it's in remarkable when you look at all of the technical advances that we have to look back uh, on a man who actually used to sit in his garage in downtown Hanover working out how to carve this ear and how to do the construct and make this. And it's a, it's a really remarkable testament to uh, one person and ability of a physician and a mind to change things uh, in the world. Um, I have nothing to disclose. Uh, but when we get back to plastic surgery, this uh, some of you may have seen this program some years ago, Dr. 90210. There were a lot of shows that were really exploding onto the scene at that time. Um, he's very famous. Uh, they don't have, make surgical scrubs like this here, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> and I don't spend enough time in the gym to <laughs> get my biceps to look that good. But... Uh, Anyway, uh, just before I came here, I used to be Dr. 10461. That was in the Bronx. Um, I had a different kind of practice, but uh, uh, this was the most, uh, um, uh, uh, by, by the congressional record, is the poorest congressional district in the entire United States. Uh, it's remarkable for its diversity. It's a, a, a remarkable number of languages spoken uh, and uh, the, the number of people from around the world who settled in that location. Plastic surgery is it goes hand in hand with that though. It's not just for Beverly Hills. We do things like craniofacial surgery, hand surgery, cleft lip palate burns, trunk trauma, tumors, reconstruction. 
We do do surgeries like this, aesthetic surgery, breast augmentation, um, uh, liposuction, all of those things, breast reductions. These are very common and part of the staple of what we do. We do aesthetic surgery for facial rejuvenation. People want to look better. I was telling my daughter, and I'm sure you've probably seen this in the pediatric patients as well, but with the advent of social media, uh, everyone being on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, uh, the dreaded Snapchat, uh, it's amazing that kids just get obsessed, uh, particularly with their facial appearance, and it's really extraordinary, uh, the change that, that I've seen amongst children in particular. Botox, fillers, collagen, uh, fat injections, these are all part of what we do every single day. But when you really get back to what, what really, um, uh, makes us get up every morning and do the things that we do, at least some of us. Um, cleft lip and palate is a paradigm for what we do, and, and, and particularly for me, both between this and craniofacial surgery, which are components of both. It really has been a, a, a career which has been so satisfying in terms of being able to help and change the lives of individuals and, and um, be able to make a very dramatic impact in their lives. Um, uh, Keith and I were discussing a little bit. Um, my own journey started back, uh, I wasn't born in 61, but, uh, but close. Uh, but this is sort of the tail end of a period of time uh, right after the Korean War. Uh, my mother uh, and father were both uh, uh, working in the United States and then went back to work in Korea after the Korean War. They had come here via a variety of organizations, and that's a whole other story, but through some mission organizations, um, working at this hospital. Uh, in Korea at the time. There were two general surgeons from the United States who had uh, come over and through support from churches in Alabama, they had actually funded the work at this hospital to take care of the children who had been, uh, uh, people who had been injured during the war. Uh, the country itself was devastated, much like uh, Iraq, Syria, all of these countries, I mean, bombed beyond belief. Uh, there was very little uh, for the people there. They had children like these uh, with remarkable facial burns, uh, trauma, people cooking in their homes, uh, inability to, lack of tremendous infrastructure. That's a picture of my mother in 1961. She's uh, giving anesthesia. She was actually working as the only nurse anesthetist in the hospital to the two surgeons there. She actually worked six days a week. On the seventh day, they actually gave her a day off and uh, allowed a medical student to perform any uh, anesthesia. Uh, it, they came from the medical school, and, and, and at that time, the surgeons directed the anesthesia. It was really quite remarkable, but if you can imagine day in and day out being on, I tell people, 24-hour, uh, <laughs> your call schedule is nothing compared to what they were doing then. That's a picture of my mother holding up a child with a bilateral cleft lip. Um, so I, I feel it's part of the family business, uh, but it's, uh, it is re really remarkably rewarding. They weren't plastic surgeons. They were general surgeons trained in techniques, and uh, um, plastic. the general surgeons at that time were really truly general surgeons. They were doing almost everything, including a tremendous amount of pediatric surgery. This is a, a, a person who was very important to me. His name's Dr. Ralph Millard. He was at the um, Miami uh, Children's Hospital. Uh, he, he was, I only had a little bit of time to spend with him during the time, but he was actually at, in Korea at the exact same time. He's really the father of modern cleft lip and palate surgery, and he also developed all of his techniques in Korea in the 1960s. These were some re really remarkable patients that he was working on during that time also. Um, so there was a really tre tremendous time almost 60 years ago when a lot of this work was being pioneered. 
So much like that child then, this is another child that I operated on sometime later. And it's really the, the issue of, of, of paradigms and changing paradigms uh, and, and paradigms that are similar uh, in terms of how to reconstruct tissue. And we continue to follow these children over time. They have ongoing issues, and we every time a child is born, like the young child that we saw yesterday and that I saw yesterday, brand new, it's a lifetime commitment to try to care for these people. And institutions have that bear that responsibility, as as do we all. Um, as uh, as Keith said, I do travel a lot overseas, and it's part of the um, belief that I have that um, just just as the reason I'm here today is because of individuals who try to uh, help and make things better. Um, I feel that I have a responsibility as well to do that and hopefully to train another generation simultaneously. And it doesn't matter where you go, uh, Mexico, Morocco, uh, Egypt. Um, I was particularly strike, struck by this young lady who was brought by her mother. And, and despite the fact that they do wear a tremendous number of things to cover up their faces and things that the that the desire to want to look their absolute best is is uh, is something that is carried out through all civilizations and through all cultures. We all want the best for our, ourselves and our families. Sir Harold Gillies was uh, another individual during World War One who really developed and pioneered a number of the techniques. These also came from wartime and trench warfare, and we began to learn a lot about the management of this, these techniques really at the beginning of the 20th century and moving forward and throughout the entire 20th century and then through this the 21st we have been able to make a huge impact in the way that we're reconstructing faces and doing things and probably have no at no time in our history have been able to do as much as we can for children we use the same principles though that we saw many many years ago and were, were put tongue-in-cheek by both Dr. Gillies and Millard in a famous book that they wrote uh, called Principles in Plastic Surgery about observation, diagnosis, planning, patterning, making a record, making having a lifeboat, and using some style uh, to get through. Um, we always try to replace what's normal in normal position. We'd like to treat the primary defect. We want to uh, replace losses. We don't want to ever throw anything away. We never try to throw any tissue away till everything's done. And we always like to work with other specialties and work hand in hand with individuals. Aftercare management of the patient is important, doing something positive. We try, particularly in, in children, not to do today what can honorably be done tomorrow because we know that. that surgery and growth is is four-dimensional so we have all the length height and width but we also have time to deal with and time is both your a remarkable critic but also your greatest ally this is a young boy for example that uh, if we talk about principles who I was sent to me because he had a total nasal amputation from a dog bite to his nose there was a family dog he was uh, there was a bee flitting around the boy's face and the dog just went after the bee taking the whole nose with it. You can imagine the whole scene in the emergency room there when they brought this in and uh, helicoptered him in. It was a complete uh, um, disaster. We don't really know at that point exactly how things are going to go, but we do use the same, the exact same principles that I just told you about diagnosis, making a plan. We like to make records. We take a lot of photographs because it's really important for us to understand where we start and where we go. It's not just so we can have presentations, but so we can understand exactly how did we get to where we are and teaching what we do. We have to have a lifeboat. We want to replace things. We don't throw things away. So even though they were able to find this little part, we and it looked like almost nothing, we decided, well, let's see if we can try to put it back on. We did. Didn't work. But 
it, it gave us some time. We put it on, and we actually used hyperbaric oxygen, and and uh, and the flap did go on to to sort of not make it. And 18 months later, we had to kind of work on managing this child, put nasal stents in to try to keep it open, and then had to figure out how to do. As you can imagine, during this whole time, the family was just agitating for something to be done to reconstruct the nose. There again, as I said, we honor, we try to never do today what we can honorably put off till tomorrow. So we waited and we waited, um, despite the family's great uh, anxiety. We go back all the way to the beginning of the 16th, uh, 16th and 17th and 18th centuries to England in terms of how to reconstruct noses, because this is actually a remarkable um, record back to the 18th century of the in India of people replacing noses because uh, this was a common method of treating war criminals uh, or excuse me, prisoners of war by amputating their noses to indicate that they had been captured and not allowing them to return to society in a meaningful way. World War I had a number of patients with injuries due to um, uh, trench warfare. We have people like this with uh, tumors, um, and we can we feel like we can do pretty good reconstructions. We didn't finish up everything, but uh, and we have patients with cancer, obviously doing nasal reconstructions for basal cell. But this is the youngest child that we had ever tried this on. Actually, it had not been reported up until that time uh, in somebody who's two years old. There really isn't any way to replace this except using what we call classically the forehead flap. That's the forehead flap in the top, again, de designed by... Uh, the Indians originally, but refined by Dr. Gillies and Millard in terms of doing this. But we also know we need nasal lining, we need cartilage, uh, and, and a variety of things to support this child through the rest of his life. That's what that is. And these areas right here, you can see over the dorsum of the nose is the cartilage, the ear cartilage from both sides, rib cartilage, to make a framework. And you can see us making a framework there. We then are able to use the lining. This is not a great way to bring your patient out from the OR to the recovery room. The family doesn't really, you can tell them all these things, but this isn't really a, a exciting thing. But they have to have an appreciation for what you're going to do. Uh, an ability to communicate is so critical with, with families because it is extraordinarily difficult, extraordinarily difficult even for an adult to be like this for several weeks while we're waiting for the blood supply to take. But if you do it right, um, it will come out right. And this is after several years, a few more revisions, but you can get to a pretty good place. So, so it's a matter of thinking about the principles, replacing all the losses, putting back. Uh, and it, again, it's something that you can teach very well. It's really a, a, a issue of, of using what we know and how to do it. There's a certain amount of style that's necessary to do it, but the reality is that, that it's it's a replacing all the component parts with what you can. Now this is a not a pediatric case, but this is it just segues into this. This is a person who decided to cut his penis off uh, in a fit of uh, cocaine and PCP fueled uh, uh, hallucinations. After a court order, we were actually able to work with our urology team, put everything back on. We actually use micronastomotic coupling systems, and you can actually reconstruct that pretty well. He actually has full erections and partial sensation. You also get situations like this in a newborn, always, always a bad situation. We had a good experience in the adult reconstructive uh, world before uh, taking on new challenges. This is a boy who had an amputation of his penis uh, in a circumcision. Now, this particular uh, 
circumcision clamp, the Mogan clamp, is no longer used uh, after a variety of lawsuits after this sort of situation. But this, uh, even though they elevated the uh, foreskin, resulted in amputation of the glands penis at 50%. So this is a another helicopter transfer a family just completely uh, besides themselves. Again, we didn't really sure what the best thing to do with our urology team, but we we decided, well, we can, again, put the component parts. We don't ever throw anything away, and we just put it there. We assumed that this wasn't going to make it, and it was going to be a problem. We cannulated it, uh, re reconstructed the urethra and the, the glands. And actually, after a period of time, you can see that that, too, can be replaced very well. And it's amazing when you follow these children many, many years, uh, they actually do quite well. And there was no, never had any strictures, never had any problems. Everything was A-OK. -okay. So reconstruction is uh, principled on a variety of things. When we, how we think about it is a reconstructive ladder, a reconstructive elevator, or a matrix uh, in terms of how do we do things, primary closure, skin grafts, tissue expansion, local flaps. Uh, there are a variety of different things. It, we you get presented with problems sometimes that are so so uh, non-standard, non-traditional, like this particular child. We were asked by the pediatric surgical service um, when I was at Yale to help us help manage this particular child. They were sort of at a point where they really couldn't do anything further. This child had tremendous. Uh, fluid and evaporative losses, they couldn't control it. Um, the child was really um, going downhill, and, and you can see tremendous whole body edema, anisarca, um, and they really couldn't control what was going on. The child was really hemodynamically very unstable. Um, they couldn't get the liver back in because of the um, problem with the diaphragm and the respiratory effort. So in terms of crafting a proper solution for this, we began to use some additional tissue. This is alloderm, which is a human uh, dermal substrate. We covered the liver over this, and much like the old silo techniques, we began to do that. But we also are using newer technologies like Woundvax, and Woundvax had not been used in children this little. Uh, there's a lot of concern by the NICU staff whether this could even work uh, without killing the child in the process. But day by day, we removed a little bit of that the alloderm, which is the human dermal substrate, uh, used the vac at uh, negative pressures to allow the edema. And, uh, um, and you can see the massive resolution of edema, and the volumes were much easier to manage for the child, and the protein losses were much better. Each day, we began to close this down to the point without even any skin grafts, we were able to eventually get this closed and having a very well-healed wound over time. The child does have a hernia that would need to be fixed later as an adult or as an as a older child, but at least will be able to grow and do well. The things like the reconstructive dermal templates, this is Integra, which is a manufactured and particularly beneficial in pediatric cases. This was actually used uh, uh, in burn patients, and we began to use this. And uh, for example, in this patient who had, uh, this is actually necrotizing fasciitis from a diaper rash, uh, it was terrible. And nearly lost a third of its body surface area. This cannot be replaced. Children like this would often die because there are no proper skin substitutes, and this actually uh, originally was developed in Boston at the Shriners Institute there, and it's gone on to become a great worldwide success. But com combined in using the wound back, we're able to reconstruct all of these very well. 
But going back to the paradigms of uh, cleft lip and palate and craniofacial surgery, we have been able to modify and, and change a lot of the techniques that we've been able to do, again, by recognizing that we can actually begin to do things even in more minimalist fashion, begin to move a little bit uh, um, and do less, do more with less. And this has a lot to do with the fact that we've been able to travel it. As, as Keith said, I've traveled so much around the world, but I, but frankly, and, and I, I was often invited to teach overseas, but I actually found I was going there mostly to learn because the surgeons there were probably better than I was by quite a long shot. Um, I learned so many techniques and we began to innovate and change things so that as we began to learn from our colleagues in Brazil, from Vietnam, places where they were working and doing things with children that, that we just never did here in the United States because they just had more cases than they could possibly imagine. They had to get it done faster, quicker, and better. So you can see that a lot of these cases, there were challenges like this young child that I saw here and after some years, and this was something that would take multiple stages, would be really difficult for us and really trying to figure out a, ch a way to manage a situation like this was incredibly difficult. But it's extraordinary using uh, some of our newer techniques, really using almost literally one incision, you can actually get to reconstruct things um, remarkably well, I think. And you can see that you get these, and that's a single operation. And and we we find that this is with with really minimal effort. The cost has has been reduced. The cost, the time of surgeries reduced. The ability of these children to get better faster is amazing, and that that's what we feel is a tremendous part. Secondly, our ability to the, for this information to be transmitted, the techniques and things via YouTube, via a, a variety of the mechanisms that we have for media, uh, have really been amazing for us. And as you continue to follow these children, they tend to do very, very well. There's some representative cases. This is a child I saw in Mexico, same kind of situation. He'd been, he's about almost five years old, never had anything repaired. And, they were, and you know, when we saw him, they said, well, this, listen, there's just really no way we're going to be able to do this. Look, his, the malposition of the maxilla is so incredible. The nasal deformity is so incredible. But again, using the very same kind of techniques on a single stage, you can at least do a very satisfactory first stage repair. And I think it's, again, it's a testament to things that, that when I started training uh, and finished training uh, here in the United States, we were not able to do this. And I think it's only been in the really the last decade that things have changed tremendously for us because of our association and affiliation with people around the world. Craniofacial surgery is another big area. Dr. David Bauer, uh, who is my colleague in, uh, in pediatric neurosurgery, has really um, been great to work with here, and the organization has been phenomenal in terms of supporting the work here. This is a, a it's a big operation, um, and it has to do obviously with cranial sutures. Why does it happen? I, it's, I, I like to, my son, who um, he actually has dyslexia, it's very interesting. He seems to have a grasp of things uh, other than reading, but uh, <laughs> we were describing what I was doing once, and uh, we were talking about the cranial sutures, and he said that, um, he said, you know, Dad, those are just like sliding glass doors, and, uh, and I said, and he said, that's like when the sliding glass door gets stuck. And that's, in fact, what it is. The gestational uh, age uh, at uh, nine months is, is insufficient for managing the brain growth So, because the brain continues to grow until about 85%, about three to five years. So 
it, the brain needs the ability to move. Those sutures have to stay open to some extent to be allow, allow the brain's rapid growth, particularly in the first year. If they do get stuck, you do have problems with the growth, and the growth affects the entire cranial base, not just the top. You do get some remarkable head shape abnormalities. So as a result, intracranial pressure can go up, and you can have patients like this who have, if you have syndromic patients, such as you may have seen before, Apert syndrome, um, but we also have the isolated non-syndromic patients, and in this case, the skull will tend to grow, the brain will tend to push up because the coronal suture is fused. Why do we operate? Well, if we don't operate, the there's increased intracranial pressure. There can be blindness, uh, obviously mental disability, physical deformity. It is both functional as well as cosmetic or aesthetic, if you will. But we also know that if you operate much later than a year or if the diagnosis comes much later than a year, there's a rapid drop-off in the um, IQ of these children over time. And so uh, you can have significant, significant challenges. And why? We don't know if it's because we're not doing enough surgery, we don't do it well enough, if it's too late, or if there's some pathology intrinsic to the brain. And we know that in cases like Apert's or some of the other conditions, there is intrinsic pathology, but in isolated cases, the, there's no intrinsic pathology that we are aware of. We do know that there are different kinds of surgeries that can help. Sometimes we can just, if we see the child early enough, we can do just a strip craniectomy and remove a portion of it and use the helmet to model the skull afterwards. We have regional cranioplasty techniques and ultimately we have what's called whole vault cranioplasty techniques. Regional cranioplasty is where we just remove part of the suture, um, but sometimes that doesn't affect the whole cranial base which gets abnormal and then the facial development is abnormal long term. We do have to remove the entire scalp, uh, sometimes the area around the orbits. And because all of the deformities are totally intrinsic to the skull, if we get it too late, we have to do a whole, what we call a whole vault cranioplasty. In this case, the anesthesia is very difficult. We have to put the patient in a position like this. This is difficult because the head is above the heart. Air can be entrained. We can get air emboli. Um, positions hard on the cervical spines, really hard on anesthesia, um, hard on the child. And this is obviously a child who's about five to six months of age, so blood loss is quite enormous. Um, but it works very well. And, and if you have something like sagittal suture synostosis, where the sagittal suture in the midline is fused, the skull grows forward, back, uh, the front and back grow too large. You have to remove the entire skull. Uh, it's a big deal, but actually, um, you'd be surprised. The patients go home in five days. It's pretty amazing. You see them two weeks, they look great. So in a situation like this where everything's been removed, and I know I'm a trend, I'll probably never get another referral because it's <laughs> too crazy looking, but but actually it works really well. And, and um, but, but it requires enormous uh, teamwork on the part of our, um, our pediatric anesthesia colleagues, our nursing, our PICU team, uh, our pre-op workups, everything has to be just right. And when we get it right, this is what we have to do. We have to take off the entire skull, reshape the whole thing, put it back into position, recover it, and then close it all up. It looks like nothing happened. If you if you do it right, we use a lot of um, uh, techniques that, that are really woodworking techniques. I used to work on making musical instruments in high school, and we learned all of those techniques in woodworks about cutting curves and channeling and bending bone and bending wood. Um, it's very similar, and because bone, like wood, is a living tissue.
What do we do differently these days? Well, some of the advances have come in virtual surgical planning. So uh, this is a boy who I saw in New York who's rather unfortunate because he actually is about 12 or 13. You can see his re really remarkably odd head shape. He had actually come from Africa as a young child and actually been seen in New York, but uh, this had never been picked up as a, as a finding. He actually didn't speak at all. He had terrible headaches. Uh, uh, raised intracranial pressure, uh, papilledema, a variety of other issues. He would have gone blind at some point, but I mean, he really actually never spoke at all. Uh, it's quite sad, but but overall, this was required. This really had to do surgery for him because of this. But this head shape was so abnormal that trying to reconstruct it, you can imagine an, an adult. Uh, cranium that's thickened, it's very difficult to try to figure that out. We do use this as virtual surgical planning, so we use a 3D CT scan. We can send this off and get this milled, and as you can see, they can even see exactly where all the tooth roots are, everything else is done. And it's, a, it's an exact replica, allows us to figure out exactly how we want to do it, pre-plan the operation. This in the middle and the right, these are pre-planned cutting guides, so we do this with the engineers online. We actually plan the entire surgery using a three-dimensional uh, image and scan. In the middle there, you can see that is a the T and L, and all the, these are all sort of uh, uh, identifying markers for us, but what we do is we those allow us to make the cuts uh, on the skull. It's basically a, a guide, uh, cutting guides for allowing us to do that. And the reason that's important is because they're, they're obviously fairly large intracranial structures like the sagittal sinus. They're really critical. They can result in massive blood loss. So this allows our saw to actually figure out exactly, uh, allows us to figure out exactly where to put the saws, how to, far to put it down, and how far to move it without getting injury to the brain in those areas. When you do it, you can actually reshape everything, put it back together. And that's the correction right on the table. And you can see 12 days later, he's back. Uh, he's ready to go back to school, do everything fine. I mean, it's really remarkable. He didn't actually learn to speak, but his papilledema improved and his intracranial pressure improved. And his mother definitely noted a big change in his emotional outlook. Um, he was teased a lot at school also. So it's interesting that these changes have revolutionized our ability to do things. This would have been a really difficult situation for us before, and you can see the changes. We've also started doing distraction, and this, and this has been done for quite some time, and uh, um, Dr. Smith in Scotland uh, also uh, had, had done great work here before, but we had done also a lot of work in terms of figuring out how to do lengthening. Uh, we were just talking this morning about one of the patients that we had this with hemifacial microsomia, but uh, um, this was a technique that was actually discovered by a, a Russian uh, orthopedic surgeon in the 1950s by the name of Elizarov, and he had learned um, uh, that if he actually took a lot of bicycle spokes and uh, bicycle wheels and actually turned a crank and extended the length, that he could extend the limb lengths of patients. So by the 1990s, we decided that we could apply that to children in their craniofacial skeleton uh, because we also had similar problems of being able to move bone and keep it out once we'd done that. This was a young boy that was sent to me by a very astute pediatrician who just really had had followed him for some time but realized, realized that things just weren't going well for him. Actually, his teeth just never started coming in even though he was eight or nine years old and she was concerned about that. And, and he had a small bump on the top of his head there. 
we realized that eventually by doing the uh, uh, radiographic imaging that he probably had Cruzon syndrome, which is uh, sometimes difficult to detect. Um, this is an FGF receptor 2 mutation with craniosynostosis, mid-face hypoplasia, elevated intracranial pressure. They can get sleep apnea, optic ischemia, and periodically they just don't survive. Um, um, and, and they can die in their sleep. Uh, so it's really a terrible problem if it doesn't get treated. We again use those very same plans that we had discussed uh, before about diagnosis, making a plan. And again, we were using three-dimensional modeling. This was some time ago, but actually we, this was some of the very earliest three-dimensional modeling at that time. We weren't able to do much online at the time, but now the, uh, we actually just practice the cuts, um, you know, the before the surgery, but now we can actually do it do it in, in a virtual system. We can actually use that system to actually decide, uh, this is just an example of something different about utilizing um, uh, modeling. This is the mandible. Um, if you have tumors uh, and uh, juvenile tumors, uh, which actually you can see in the facial skeleton, you can use it to reconstruct this using rib cartilage or a variety of other things to actually replace it exactly. This is another case of a patient with Treacher Collins, very complicated uh, uh, surgery for redo operations. But those little numbers that you can see there and that red line as it's coming down below the teeth, that's the, uh, in, the um, inferior alveolar nerve. We can actually see where our screws and drills will go in so we don't hit those nerves, so we don't cause neuropraxia or potentially nerve injury, but they can actually tell us the position and depth of the screw that we need to go into. Before, people were used, tended to use more of the external distraction devices here, so we were able to use it and pull it and move the jaw forward. This is really not a, not something the patient's families are too keen on. Uh, not easy to send them to school this way. Um, but we worked on developing internal distraction systems. Uh, our colleagues in the PICU have obviously seen a lot of our patients with this. This actually uh, is, is a device that gets put in. The parents actually, once they're discharged, the parents actually turn this device and move that mid-face forward. So in that young patient that we we did, we actually moved his mid-face forward by almost 25 millimeters, uh, the vast majority of which was done by the mother. And um, they turned that screw four times a day, moved the face forward. We followed them very closely with radiographs. And if you see them later, they actually do very well. His airways improved tremendously. As you can see, his pressure on the optic nerves increase, uh, improved tremendously. And overall, the aesthetics are really great. This is another child with uh, um, congenital craniosynostosis, a bilateral coronal synostosis, uh, very proptotic, uh, impending corneal ulceration, uh, inability to breathe as a result of severe mid-face hypoplasia. In those cases, we can also do this too, and rapid, relatively rapidly within about a two-week period, we can move the whole face forward, allowing the eyes to close finally. Externally, we uh, originally began doing some of these devices many years ago. We had a, uh, made a, a personal decision not to do this externally because with the scarring is bad uh, in children. We can have a lot of problems with this. This is not a child that I did, but someone I saw. And this uh, gave me a commitment never to do this extraorally because of all of these scars. So we started doing these intraorally, uh, and we and not that we don't have periodic problems, but they're actually a, it's a, a much smaller device. We use this internally. We can move the jaw forward, and in cases like these, we can actually achieve very good results very quickly with no scarring whatsoever. This is ear reconstruction. This is another device internally that we can turn in the mouth. It's actually really well tolerated. The kids feed during this time. They're really rarely in the hospital more than a day or two. 
This was a young child who never had her tracheostomy removed, uh, and um, she couldn't breathe. And in fact, the family could never travel uh, out of state because they had to be within uh, some period of time. First thing they did was to go to Disney World after she got her decannulated. <laughs> um, and more more representative cases. This is a patient with Bromberg's disease or hemifacial atrophy. And within a relatively short period of time. We can also do this for patients who've had radiation tumor. Uh, they have lack of mandibular growth. Uh, so in general, it's well tolerated. I was saying to one of our students yesterday, and we were talking about um, surgery not uh, being a, a field where you tend not to follow patients, uh, and that's true for a lot of surgery. One of the reasons I was most attracted to um, uh, pediatric plastic surgery was that you do follow patients, craniofacial surgery in particular. So this is a child that we started treating at age five, and we continue to follow her over time. I've been different places, but they've always come to see me. Uh, so as you do the distraction and 15 years later, you can see we have a really great result and we've been able to manage her occlusion and her facial profile. We did a lot of work with fat grafting. She, had, uh, she was born with a hemifacial microsomia. So if you look at that boy that, that first came to see me then, as you continue to follow him up over time, we can see in the dental situation, the dental occlusion, things change over time and they get much better overall. Um, I would have I actually followed him until relatively recently. He unfortunately went, as you follow him so long that they actually become adults and he actually has spent a little time in prison, so it's been difficult to sort of get him there, but, but um, that's a little bit sad. We also have newer things like bone scaffolds, cancellous bone stem cells. We are using a lot of things that we that that hopefully will help us eliminate the need for bone grafting in children, which is very painful, and they don't have a lot of additional tissue to give us bone morphogenetic protein, which is really developed for spinal applications. Really, uh, outside the U.S., unfortunately, though, we had some early off-label trials, uh, but we can't use it anymore. So it's um, but. Is that it's not uh, it's not approved in children, but it's uh, just to go on to tell you that it is. These are some options that are coming in the future. 3D imaging. We are printing a great deal. Many hospitals are now getting their own 3D printers, so we can actually make constructs and figure out how to do it ourselves without having to rely on companies. The printing costs are getting extraordinarily low. And we use this virtual surgical planning to help us guide exactly what we're going to do, how to do it, use the least amount of uh, tissue from children. Um, one of the thing, the unique things that I wanted to tell you about that we're doing here, which I think is a first and, and, and is probably the, some of the most interesting, exciting work that I've done in my career, our Center for Surgical Innovation, which is uh, down on the basement level, uh, if you have ever uh, seen information about it, but it allows us to do uh, simultaneous MRI in the surgical suite. So this MRI comes in and allows us to get images either before or after, so we don't have to put the kids to sleep before. We can just image them just before the surgery and then image them immediately afterwards and we can do CT scanning at the same time. It's an enormous, uh, and we did the very first children here that were actually uh, around five to six months of age, which has really never been done anywhere. What does that allow us to do? Well, it allows us, in this case, for example, of a child with craniosynostosis to actually look at the actual venous flows inside the brain because we know there's compression. We don't really know where the compression is, so our, our work with David Bauer uh, and myself has been trying to elucidate what happens when we change. So if you look at the image on the left and the image on the right, the left is pre-op, left is post-op, you can see the tremendous changes in the flow. And we were extraordinarily excited when we saw these results because 
Again, we're not sure this is a qualitative image so far. We're attempting to get quantification data on actual flows, but we think that this is this may be part of the reason behind some of the changes in the brain uh, due to craniosynostosis. And there's some pre-op and post-op. Again, we can see changes that that qualitatively look very different. We just don't have the quantitative uh, calculation capabilities yet, but we're actually working on that as we speak. Um, Again, we're not really sure what all of these mean, but it clearly is a qualitative difference. And we think that that uh, potentially as a result of the, uh, should result in a fairly significant uh, ability for us to study the physiology of the brain simultaneously without having to put the child through additional, the child and family through additional um, uh, suffering through uh, additional MRIs or CT scans. In fact, the, the these studies have never been done because we've not been able to put our children back to sleep and nobody's wanted to do that to understand this. We have other challenges that are coming up and I just put a few little things in here. We've seen an enormous number of people going up with uh, uh, changes in uh, obesity, macromastia, the breast sizes have gone up really and so we used to do a great deal of breast reduction primarily in adult uh, women. But it's actually starting to come down more and more to younger, younger and younger children. We've also dealt a lot with uh, changes in the uh, gender reassignment, which has become another issue, and gender reassignment in children has become a, of concern also for us. We've also seen a lot of gynecomastia. We're not really sure why. Uh, uh, then it's really remarkable, too, as to why this, these are young boys. We're seeing uh, patients like this. It's really immensely psychologically distressing, as you can imagine. Um, but um, again, we're not really sure why we're seeing these, or if these are just isolated cases. But we've seen enough clearly to make us begin to wonder if there's some additional processes going on. We have been able to do also great uh, things, I think, because we're again using a combination of liposuction and neuromodalities, but you can actually do this through a simple two centimeter incision, sometimes allowing compression to actually take care of this problem altogether with a very simple surgery. So um, our challenge is oftentimes you're getting insurance authorization for these cases more than actually doing the surgery. Long term, I just put a few things out there. Burns, uh, burns in the U.S. have really decreased, and for that we are tremendously grateful. This is a young woman who was actually thrown under a car, and this is a muffler burn. Um, but worldwide, burns continue to be a massive challenge. The use of uh, uh, cooking implementation in in houses, uh, people wearing cotton shirts, uh, flame burns, is resulting in an enormous number of burns. If you travel around the world, you'll see an enormous number. Again, we feel like they're remarkable improvements. Um, we're using a lot of the things like the Integra fat grafting as a new technique, tissue expansion. And with all of those over time, after multiple operations, you can actually get a, she's not completed with her uh, things, but, but face transplant is probably not a great long-term solution for anyone really, although we're composite transplants are, are improving. But we feel that even without that technology, we can actually uh, do a great deal for our patients. So I, I just sort of bring it back to uh, Dr. Tanzer, who this was his first patient that he ever did here uh, in Hanover. Really remarkable work uh, and still stands as sort of the gold standard by how we think about things. Um, more importantly, though, all of these individuals who are really, really remarkable innovators, their most important thing was teaching and helping uh, uh, another generation uh, learn and think and figure out how best to help people. 
so the future, I think, is really quite bright when it comes to children. I think it's uh, really remarkable, and um, I, I want to thank you for your attention, and uh, I'll take any questions. Thank you very much. successes you've had for something that I think we all share, the notion of not doing today what we can honorably do, do tomorrow with families who are often desirous of doing something and now. You, you know, uh, it's interesting. I, I used to uh, I, I knew Dr. Millard, and he had actually written that book and uh, done the quotation, and I didn't ever ask him about that particular line, but I spent a lot of time thinking about it. That book was written in prior to 19, it was written in 1950, but most of those cases had come before that time. Um, obviously, that was, though most of those cases were done in the pre-antibiotic era. So the one thing historically, I think, for people who are coming out of medical school now or training now or residents now don't understand that um, many of the things that we do, we simply just could not do because of infection. And so uh, the risk of patients dying, the U.S. military, for example, in 19, the 1947 uh, uh, manual uh, actually repairing a pressure ulcer uh, at the sa at some time was considered a court martial offense for the military surgeons uh, because the rate of death was so high in those patients so they were prohibited from doing those surgeries it was not until after 1950 that uh, plastic surgeons began to say hey can we maybe do something a little bit different um, so one of the things that happens is that there's like in that patient a, an enormous uh, pressure on you as a surgeon uh, and for a variety of different reasons to say, gosh, you know, you just have to fix this now and you have to take care of it. Um, I had a patient that is coming up for surgery two weeks from now. They had they were they actually been in Miami Children's Hospital. They had come up here to move up here and they had a variety of complications and problems. And I and as usual, I was trying to get them to wait some time uh, to fix them. and Mark Smith and I are working with the patient and uh, I mean I, I just cannot even tell you how, how painful it was I mean and finally you know we had a enormous hour meeting and said you know we're just not doing this you know and and you know the patient went to get second opinions they went someplace else they said oh yeah they should do it and it's like well fine good you, they should do the surgery then if they're gonna do it but but, but they came back and uh, you know we spent time dealing with that I, and I and I think uh, um, you know I think it's just a matter of being able to communicate in some way um, to express what you need to do um, and and not uh, giving the patient um, false hope. I think that's really the thing is to just be as realistic as possible. I, 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 we've certainly lost cases. I think that's probably reasonable. But um, in all those cases that I've lost, uh, the families have often come back and said, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that. <laughs> you, maybe you were right. Um, so, so I think in the end, I, I can only do what I can do and we just try to do that. So. Uh, so my question is a little easier. The, so when you reconstruct the cartilage, that, so that just grows with him? We, we don't, you know, that again is a, uh, I, I, 
it's it's taken me almost 20 years to figure out what I should have done. Uh, and uh, so there are parts. Uh, I've, at that patient, I've, I have lost a little bit to follow up, although one of my friends says, continues to follow the patient and they tell me they're doing quite well. We don't know. There's a, The question uh, centers around, um, do you keep the perichondrium or the periosteum? Does that then supply the bone and growth? Um, we definitely do not want to use any alloplastic foreign material in children because obviously it's not going to grow. At least this has the, the relative chance of growing with these children. Um, but I've, I've talked to a few people around the world who've managed to do similar cases and they, you know, I think we've all seen continued growth. We, we don't, um, every time we work on children with cleft lip and uh, nasal disorders, uh, particularly for nasal problems, we were told in the beginning, never do that operation when they're little because at 18 they're gonna need that again. That is pretty difficult when faced with a 12-year-old or a 14-year-old uh, young woman uh, or boy. Um, but we learned in the beginning, though, that if we actually do that surgery at the time of the first surgery or very early in the first year, actually things tend to grow fine. And we are much better because actually we don't have to do that surgery again. Those cases that I showed you with distraction, um, people we were told initially, well, don't ever do that surgery until they're 18 because this is never going to grow properly and you still have to do it again. But we have found that when we put it back in the right place at the right time, the body just somehow figures out how to do it. So we've not had to go back and operate on those patients again so we've been very fortunate but we but that requires a lot of follow-up um, so that's hard yes going straight um, so, so very early on, if you do the, the surgery very early at three months of age, um, because the bone is so um, uh, uh, soft in its nature, it's basically like cardboard, you have to reshape it. So helmet therapy is very critical in those patients. Um, the older patients, though, the structural construct is strong, and so the brain just pushes to where it wants to go. And presumably, if the pathology is not intrinsic to the brain itself, then it should grow into relatively good position. Um, there are times when it doesn't and you have to reconsider something, but usually that's where we're trying to do the studies with the MR to show does the brain go into its normal relaxed position. And what we can see initially is it looks like it does. It wants to go where it wants to go. Yes. Um, thank you for that great talk. It was really eye-opening and I'm, I'm just incredibly in awe about what you guys can accomplish. In the thank you. Center. Um, you said that one of your goals was teaching and educating. So obviously, the learners who are always in the back row um, yes. uh, are not surgeons. These are pediatric residents and medical students, most of whom won't go into surgery. Is there a take-home teaching message that you want them to know of pediatric plastic surgery? Because obviously, the techniques, even since I was in medical school or you were in medical school, have evolved in leaps and bounds. So you know. You know, I've, I've uh, it's a good question. I, I've, uh, in fact, I've tried to understand a lot about um, what we're doing and, and things. I, I have two, but, but the two most important things I've learned over uh, a couple of decades is that uh, um, the most important thing to do is listen to your patients, uh, the children and the families, uh, particularly the children. I found it's fascinating. I. It's it's very unusual. I had a six-year-old boy yesterday in the office, and we were talking about wanting to do some surgery. And this is not something obvious because he has VPI and and uh, hyperresonance. And we were, I asked him. I said, um, I said, Taylor, do you have anything you would like 
to ask me and are you do you want to have surgery and he said uh, he said yeah sure <laughs> so but that's pretty weird I mean it's uh, you know but but I but he was listening the whole time very sophisticated and, and I have to say I learned that from my son whose picture he's now 15 but um, yeah, we had, very early on we had a really great pediatrician. He was, he was like the pediatrician everybody wanted. Uh, but my wife is an obstetrician, so she used to go and uh, pediatric appointments, and they used to talk a lot about medicine and everything else like that. My son, so I, I said, uh, I asked my son one day, I said, Sebastian, do you do you like uh, Doctor Smith? And he said, uh, he said, not really. <laughs> I said, I said, why? And he said. Uh, you know, it's really weird, but and he was about seven at the time. He said, uh, "When he, when I go to the appointment, he makes me sit there in my underwear, and then he just talks to my mother <laughs> for the for the whole visit, and then he pokes and prods me a little bit, and then says I'm fine." So uh, I said, and he said he never talks to me, <laughs> like you know, and so I, that's that I think is the thing that I've learned the most uh, from from my patients and my families is that I try to really involve. All the patients. I, have a lot, I see a lot of patients for otoplasty, for example, for prominent ears. And I have people come in. They said, that, I had a mother once told me, said, uh, so I'd like you to do this otoplasty. And the child's about six or seven. And I said, um, okay. Well, she said, I don't want it. We don't want to have the discussion with, with you know, the Elizabeth in the room. And uh, I said, well, that's a little hard to do. I'm an examiner. I said, well, what do you, what would you like me to tell her we're going to do for the surgery? And uh, so we'll just tell her we're going to put her to sleep to pierce her ears. And I said, what? <laughs> like, that's crazy. <laughs> and I said, I said, I really, we, you know, it's going to be very difficult after the surgery when we have to explain to her why she has her whole head wrapped and all of her friends get earrings like without that. So I said, uh, I said, I, I think you guys should spend a little time figuring out if that's really what you want to do and what she wants to do, because if it's not what she wants to do, I don't want to do it. And uh, and, and I think that's really important is to try to, uh, I think the information is coming down further and further to kids, and it's not uh, anything that I feel uh, that strongly about. I mean, obviously there are things you have to do, but but I, I really think that that's the most important part. I've learned more to, to that the successful outcome is really involving all three individuals or all four individuals. So, yeah. All right. Thank, thank you very much.